I'm Linda Laurel, creator and host of Our Voices Matter. Why this podcast and why now? Because it's time for us all to take a deep breath and listen. I am a journalist, business owner, keynote speaker, founder of an education nonprofit, wife, mother, daughter, sister, dancer, and lover of life, and my country. And like so many of you, I am deeply distressed at the deteriorating level of discourse in our democracy. This podcast is my humble attempt to do something about it, one story at a time. It is my hope that as you listen to and watch the stories of someone you might consider to be the other, that you will somehow see a glimpse of yourself and be reminded of our common humanity. So what do you say? Let's take this journey together. Welcome to Our Voices Matter, a podcast dedicated to empowering us all to better understand each other. Our goal, to replace fear with knowledge, disdain with respect, and hate with love, one story at a time. So let's get to it. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in today, and a big thanks to you, Mustafa Tamiz, for taking time to to talk to us about um, so many different things that are that are going on in the country. And full disclosure, Mustafa and I do business together uh, through your firm, Outreach Strategists. Um, why don't you start by telling our our listeners and our viewers a little bit about what you do? Uh, I'm a recovering campaign consultant. <laughs> Did a lot of political work. We used to work for Mayor White. Was his campaign manager, and political director for for many years when he was when he was mayor. Uh, now our firm does a lot of public affairs and media relations work. So we uh, represent companies like Uber, but we do a lot of uh, public engagement and community oriented work. Okay, so now I want to turn a little bit more to the personal side of Mustafa. So as you know, the reason that I'm doing this podcast is because I'm trying to foster conversations where people can in effect, at some point, try to put themselves in someone else's shoes to understand what that perspective is like, because we are so far apart at this point. Um, I'd like for you to share, you're a Muslim man living in America, mm-hmm. to share a little bit about your background, um, where you were born, etc., how you got here, and what it's like for you to be living in this environment today. Well, my family uh, moved to Queens, New York in 1978, and I was eight years old. Uh, so I grew up in Queens, New York. And, um, you know, one of my early memories is that when my, when we moved and I started fourth grade, I didn't speak English. Your family moved from? Uh, uh, Karachi, Pakistan. Pakistan, okay. Uh, so when we moved here, you know, enrolled in fourth grade, I didn't speak English. So I, I have uh, memories of being in school. Uh, and all the kids are so much bigger than you are, uh, and, and you didn't know what they were saying. And that uh, feeling of not understanding and, and feeling just frightened um, probably were for the first like six months uh, of school were, were like that. And so I always have a, um, uh, a soft spot for people that struggle with language uh, because when you don't understand or if someone has a hearing impairment uh, or someone can't see, they're living in a very different reality than the rest of us. Uh, and so as you're talking about walking in somebody else's shoes, uh, it's always been easy for me to walk in somebody else's shoes 
that is somewhat misfit in a particular environment. Um, so, you know, growing up in Queens, you know, we, 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 uh, it was five of us. We grew up in a one bedroom apartment and we lived there for five years, uh, slept on a floor, uh, for the better part of those, uh, early, early years of my life. Um, and I was talking to somebody the other day. I, I didn't think I was telling them I didn't have a room of, of myself till I was a sophomore in high school. Mm-hmm. I actually didn't have a bed for myself till I was a sophomore in high school. Um, so, you know, we grew up in a working class family, we worked what hard. You, what did your parents do? My father worked for the New York City Police Department. Uh, he was, uh, he retired, uh, as part of the NYPD. He was uh, part of the civilian staff there. Um, and then he also had a, a job at night. So, you know, he worked at a, a store that was inside of a, a hotel. So he worked very hard. He worked 18 hours uh, a day. For the better part of my life, I've always seen him have two jobs. Like he would go in the morning, very early morning, come back very late at night. Didn't have a lot of time in the middle. Um, but it was uh, through hard work that, that we got to the United States. And it was through his hard work that, um, you know, I'm sitting here today with you. Um, and so it's, it's, uh, there's a lot of grace in that. Why did your family decide to move from Pakistan to the United States? You know, like most, Many families um, that come to the United States, uh, you, you come seeking opportunity. And my father came seeking opportunity for his kids. He actually was fairly comfortable uh, in Pakistan. We had an upper-middle income life. Uh, he, he was a kind of middle management. Uh, we had a, a nice home that we had built. Um, so he didn't really need to come for himself. Uh, when he came to the United States, he, he was really coming for his kids. He knew that the opportunity for, for myself and, and, and my brother and sister, the, the three kids he had, would be greater in this country than it was back where we were. Uh, and his uh, sister lived here, and, and she, um, you know, through the immigration process, I uh, filed for immigration for him and it took many years to get that immigration. And when it came, we sold our house and sold pretty much everything we had. Uh, and in his, you know, mid-40s, uh, moved from Karachi, Pakistan to the United States. And I, and I remember when he first moved here, you know, you, you sell everything you have, you convert your rupees into dollars, which doesn't amount as much. Um, and so, you know, you come and thinking that you know, this is the land of milk and honey and you'll find employment and things will be great. But it was hard. It was, this is in the 1978, late 70s United States. The economy wasn't all that, all that, uh, going all that well. Uh, it was hard for him to find a job. And, uh, one of the first jobs, he ended up finding was in Nathan's hot dogs. Uh, and here's, here's somebody who, you know, comes from uh, a generation where we were fairly comfortable, you know, always had worked in a office environment, you know, upper middle management and for him to do, you know, hard labor type of work. And so I remember him coming home one day, um, you know, talking to, to my mom about this, that, you know, there, there was a 16 year old teaching him how to stuff a garbage bag. And he didn't know whether he should laugh or cry because he was <laughs> like the 16 year old was my boss and he was telling wow. me how to fill a garbage bag. Right. Wow. And that was his, um, you know, that was one of his first jobs. And for him, you know, this was a, a, a difficult thing. So someone in their forties to go back to working for a 16 year old, mm-hmm. you know, stuffing uh, garbage and, and mopping floors. When he just had never done that, but and he, he but he, he 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 did it, uh, uh, he and it was a, and it was a true sacrifice. It was a yeah. sacrifice 
uh, on his part and my mother's part to come to a place to learn new language, to start all over again, uh, to give you know a better future uh, to um, uh, to their kids. And so for me, um, you know, part of, of of being here is not just um, doing well, but but contributing. Uh, finding a way that that opportunity that my father created for me and uh, and my children um, that that opportunity is for everyone and that just doesn't mean just for immigrants it just means for for everybody around you because if if I'm not able to deliver on that then my father's sacrifice really didn't mean a lot because we were quite we were doing okay where we were it's not that we came uh, that we were poor or we didn't have enough means, you know, we, we came, we had a fairly comfortable life where we were. So this is a, so for, for me, giving back and being involved in the community and being involved in the civic capacity, making the city, the state, this country better uh, is a driving force. As you pay attention to the, uh, the dialogue that's going on, uh, if you can call it dialogue in our nation right now, as it relates to immigration, um, as it relates to um, uh, religion, as it relates to everything. But you have a, a, a unique perspective on, on those two issues, especially. So I want you to talk a little bit about what the misconceptions are about Muslims and what if any personal experiences can you share with us to help people understand um, what your perspective is and, and why those who might be watching you or looking at you or any Muslim person and have a sense of fear because they don't necessarily know or understand, what would you say to enlighten us all? Well, look, I mean, I think it's it's not... It's not all that of a unique perspective. I think that we are a nation of immigrants uh, that was founded on religious freedom. At, at the heart of uh, the, the American experiment is that, that a, na- that a group of people can come together from around the world and be Americans. Um, you know, we, we're not indigenous people. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of us uh, at one point uh, in some part of our heritage has come here, unless you're a Native American. So... We're a nation of immigrants, and we were founded for the specific purpose of religious freedom. So this is, if you ask me, where do you want to be? Where do you fit in the world? It's here. Um, I don't have that sense anywhere else. And a, and a kid growing up in Queens, uh, this uh, Houston has become home to me. And so if out of all the places where I could go and live, um, and, 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 and to be honest with you, we're blessed in the sense that we do have opportunities. We can go live in lots of other places. This is the place where I choose to be because this is my home. Uh, and, you know, the best way for me to explain how um, Muslim Americans uh, feel, um, during the, the last election cycle, I was taking my son to school, um, who at that time was in, in fourth grade, um, and, you know, we're driving and, and there was this, um, conversation of Muslim ban that was taking place. And my, uh, my youngest son said, I- I'm glad grandpa's dead. And so you're driving your car and <laughs> you're like, I hope I'm glad grandpa's dead. And it just jarred me a little bit. I said, uh, why do you say that? Reluctantly, because I didn't, didn't know where that's coming from. Right? Where's this coming from? Right? Um, 
And he was like, well, because, you know, he had a beard. I don't think they would let him be in the country. And I don't know where he would go if he couldn't be at home with us. So, um, if a four, was he, uh, he was in, he's in fourth grade. So, he, you know, yeah. So, so, so think about like at a young age, um, um, a, a young boy, uh, uh, being grateful that grandpa's not alive because he didn't know what would happen to grandpa, uh, just because he had a beard that he might not be able to live in this country. So those are the kind of difficult conversations that. What did you um, say to him? Uh, you, you know, to, I, I'll have to be honest with you. I, I am, um, I write talking points for, for people for a living. And I was speechless. I, I didn't know how to engage in that conversation. And, 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 and I think that that's not uncommon. I think that this last election cycle, uh, not just the Muslim community, but, uh, uh, all, all, whether you're, you're a woman, whether you're, uh, Hispanic, whether you're a Muslim American, uh, really, there's a whole stratus of, of many of us that have a hard time talking to our kids. Uh, there have been times where you walk in and the news is playing and you put it on mute because you're afraid what your kids might hear. Um, and I don't think in my adult life, I don't remember a time where uh, any of us felt that way, that we had to mute the television while the news hour was happening because we were afraid what our kids might hear. And, and that's the, I think, and, then, and that's not an uncommon experience for a lot of Americans now. It's no longer just, hey, this is about the Muslim community. Well, it's no longer just about the Muslim community. It's no longer just about the Hispanic community. It's no longer just about women. Uh, it seems to be that that list of the other continues to grow. Um, and so uh, we have to come together as Americans and start stitching back the fabric of this nation because it, it's, it's being teared and it's being pulled. Uh, it's not just happening in this country as a nation. Um, around the world, we're seeing this, that the extremes are not just ruling the airwaves um, uh, with vile rhetoric, but now that vile rhetoric is, is taking political uh, force uh, and is starting to implement policy that that not just divide us, but actually put us in danger. Um, I should also let our audience know, you probably have figured out, many of you, if you watch cable news regularly, that you see Mustafa many times um, on Fox News, on CNBC, on CNN, etc., um, as a pundit, if you will. <laughs> I never really considered a title I really aspired for most of my life. (laughs) But you are often called upon to weigh in on some of the issues that we're discussing right now. Um, What kind of changes? I mean, you've been doing that that part of your your work for the last couple of years. You've been very very visible. Um, Just in the last year or so, have you seen a change at all in terms of of I guess just the, the the level of 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 vitriol. Um, what are what are what are you hearing and seeing and talking about um, among the the folks who are in cable news um, on the inside? Can you give us a little bit of that insight? Look, I, I think that um, if you look at or, or, or those of us, those are listening or watching this, if you look at your calendar, we all have become very busy. And um, the fight to get our attention 
has become fundamentally the most important thing uh, from an advertising standpoint. So uh, as as the as the traditional way of life, which was, you know, you went to work at nine, you got up, you were done at five o'clock, you came home by six, you had dinner by seven, you watched a little bit of television and you went to bed. That's no longer the case. Those days are gone, right? We, the, the amount of productivity that we are uh, squeezing out of ourselves is at all time high. We're incredibly productive with what we do. So, from an advertising standpoint, um, you know, if you're marketing something, that you have to get our attention. And so those platforms uh, have become a, a way to do that. So you're seeing a lot of clickbait stuff. So newspapers are struggling to sell advertising, and so they're going more towards a clickbait environment. Uh, cable news is going to an environment where something that has to be really almost like a car crash for you to see, to get your attention to see. Uh, and so while that's happening on the one end where the, the advertising need to get our attention is heightened and, and required for business models, on the other side, what you're really seeing is um, this, inter- this connectivity we have with social media. iPhone was invented in 2007. iPad was in 2010. So it's not that long ago. Social media really took off after that because now you have a phone and you're connected to people all the time. So something happens around the world, you know immediately. And you know it not from Walter Cronkite or Linda Laurel, right? You, you hear it from people that think like you. Right. So it's framed in a way that's already prepackaged uh, in how you already think. So if you believe in something, as soon as you see that, you believe it more. So our hearts are hardening. Uh, our opinions are getting stronger and our emotions are, you know, just more raw. Well, because the, the, the information that we're getting is reinforcing what we already think and believe yeah. in real time. In real time, right? So, so if you, if you kind of put those two things together from an advertising standpoint, you need to get people's attention. On the other side, you know, we're interconnected. So anything that happens, we get the real raw emotion to kind of pull our attention. So those two things are happening constantly. In any given night on cable television, at prime time, um, Fox News, MSNBC, and CNN combined, the combined audience is around 5 million people. So in a country of 320 million people, that's, that's not a lot, yeah. right? So where that's really moving is those clips are being tweeted and their clips are being put on Facebook and people are talking about it. And so it is really at the palm of our hands that we're having conversations with people that think and believe the way we do. So let's, I want to talk a little bit about the media's role in all of this. Um, Obviously, I'm a journalist. Um, I was a news anchor at the NBC station here in Houston for almost 17 years and a reporter for a couple of years before that. Um, and then you've got your experience in the media. So I want to know what your take is on how much um, would you say the media are responsible for the division that we have in the country? Because there are people who think that, yeah. that the media bear quite a lot of responsibility for that. Yeah. Look, I, I think... Um I have a contrarian viewpoint of this. I think that it's very often that we point the finger at Washington and say Washington's the problem or the media and the media is the problem. And in reality, uh, those are mirrors and a reflection of us. You know, we elect people 
that are in Washington. So we elect, that is the function of who we put there. And in the media, it's, it's what we watch is what people produce. If nobody watched it, nobody would produce it. So, um, it, you know, I, I always say like public opinion drives public policy and public opinion is shaped by the media. And so sometimes people think, oh, so the media is like shaping public opinion. That's not true. It's what people see on the media is what shaped public opinion. And what people see is basically what's happening. So if the president says something vile, the media has to report it. Um, opinion journalism has increased, you know, significantly. So now you're seeing opinion journalism a in, a, in a, in a yeah. more significant way, yeah. just because also it's, it's, um, it's what is because you have so many outlets that, you, that, that the opinions have to be out there. Meaning that as human beings, uh, we always do want to know what others think. Right. So this is the modern day version of that. Uh, at one point, it used to be just an op ed that you wrote. And now it's that you can get up on television and say your viewpoint and somebody wants to hear the other side. So I don't think the media is to blame for this because there's we don't want certainly somebody to be a police of that. I think it's segmented. So we are watching the things that, you know, we agree with. And then it's being served to us in a platform where not only that message is what we appear agree with, but people that we know, our friends, our colleagues, are commenting on it and telling us that they agree with it too. So it it just hardens our positions, and that is something that we personally, individually, have to take responsibility and say, "I want to understand the other side. I, I want to walk in somebody else's shoes to see how they would feel about this." And until we're willing to do that ourselves, um, it becomes very easy to say it's Washington, it's Austin, it's uh, the president, it's the media that's at fault. Um, that's good. And I, I, I agree with with that to a point. Um, I, I do think I do think that um, it's going to take people at the grassroots level to really make a difference. Um, which is again, which is why I, you know, decided to do this podcast and to, and to talk to to all type, all kinds of people from from all different walks of life. Um, I do think that the media media outlets need to need to really think um, in, in in a little bit of a different way in terms of how they're covering certain things. I know one of the one of the the raps that especially CNN got during the election, especially early in the election, is that they were playing uh, Trump's rallies, you know, beginning to end, nonstop, multiple for multiple months because they didn't believe he had a chance of winning. That was the reality. And then when it became, well, guess who, who won? Then all of a sudden, you know, it, it, there was a there was a switch. So I, I just I find that really interesting, and and I know that media outlets are struggling with how to deal with social media, the immediacy of it, and with a business model that was created forty or fifty years ago, and how to you know connect those dots and yet still serve the people in the way that they they need to. Yeah, well, I mean, at the end of the day, the. News used to be a small component of the entire day's broadcast. It was mm -hmm. half hour or an hour, right? Now there's 
channels that are devoted to that. Right. And in it, they have news and they have opinion journalism. And it's very hard people to distinguish between what's opinion versus what's actual news. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you look at the ratings, you know, like that CNN rating would be less than a million people watching. But it's how is that being clipped and pushed out on other distribution methods on social media and other places where the bulk of it is being watched. So I think that we have to kind of start putting that in context, right? Because in a way, it's, it's a, it's a generational thing. If you ask baby boomers and generation X, like, like my generation, we're new to social media, that this is not native to us. We've learned it. We use it, but it's not as intuitive because it's still new. Um, we can't discern between what's opinion versus what's news, what's legitimate and real versus what's just hype, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at the generation uh, after mine, um, they can actually tell uh, what is credible and what is not uh, they, because they this is a native environment for them. Mm-hmm. So they, they are far more discerning on what's, what's on the internet and what they are reading and what is the source versus if you look at the baby boomer generation and, and my generation, that, you know, sometimes we can be more manipulated because this is not a native environment for us. This is new. It's interesting. We're, we're, we can easily be manipulated because this is not our home turf. Um, so I think those issues will resolve themselves. I think the, I think the advertising click models will resolve themselves. Right now, you know, advertising, a lot of it is based on, you know, how many clicks you get. And pretty soon advertisers will realize that although you're getting a click, they're not actually buying it. So why base a metric of a click uh, for payment? Because that's not generating revenue. Mm-hmm. And so, but they haven't figured out what's a better way, right? So right. over time, those things will begin to resolve and content uh, will win out. And so substantive things, things that actually have a, 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 an authentic voice that speak to people. I mean, you, we're doing a podcast right now and podcasts have become incredibly popular and because people are able to discern and say, I want to listen to this, right? right? Because this is something that, uh, you know, speaks to me in a, in a particular, in a particular way. Uh, and you're seeing more and more of that, that the, the overall media market, Netflix, not just stocks, but in viewership is going up because people are able to say, I want to watch what I want to watch when I want to watch it. Exactly. Right. So as consumers, we're starting to kind of be very selective. So that I think is very strong. And in it, the better content over time is going to win out, right? Rather than the clickbait. The hard part for me is that while that's happening and there's a lot of positive to it, um, things like Pandora that you, you, if you like a particular type of music, then that music is served to you. Mm-hmm. That we're not getting to, to be in others' shoes. We're not getting to explore exactly. new things and different things and different viewpoints. Unless that, you seek it out. And, and, and that's, the, that's the whole you know, crux of it because you have to want to seek it out um, in order to get the other person's yeah. point of view. Yeah, it, it, it will have to be like it, it, like I think that uh, you know as we move forward in the next several decades, not just this one, but next several decades, um, as you see a development of artificial intelligence, uh, that people will have to actually take a decision to say, 
I want to hear the other viewpoint because the, the, where we're headed, you know, whether it's a simple example of Pandora or your Facebook feed, which gives you what you want to hear, right? right based on your past selections, exactly. right? Mm-hmm. It narrows right. uh, your choices mm-hmm. for you. And we so become silent. You become silent, right? So, right. so in, es- in essence, you know, we have so many choices. Part of us wants, you know, somebody to make some of these decisions and give us the things that we like. Mm-hmm. But over time, we're gonna, if we're going to uh, reach our individual potential, we will have to make a conscious decision and say that I want to understand the other side. I want to walk in somebody else's shoes. I want to experience something that I've not experienced before. I want to try something that I, I know intuitively I might not like, but I want to try it anyway. And it's okay. That's the whole, the whole point is that it's okay. It's okay if we don't agree politically. Um, I think, you know, it gets down to, for me, it gets down to um, human connection. Mm-hmm. And um, one of the, the downsides of technology is that it has um, led to people communicating by text and, you know, sitting right next to each other and texting and not actually taking time to look in someone's eyes and see how they are affected by whatever it is you might be saying. Mm-hmm. Um, and so in order for us to, to have that connection, I think, um, you know, Again, that's that's why I wanted to do this show, because I think it's important for people to be able to see um, a Muslim American man who was born in Pakistan and who came, you know, whose family gave up so much to be here and to understand what your perspective is. Um, what words of encouragement do you have for us? Um, as we navigate these very tricky times? Look, I, I think that there is a general um, feeling more than anything of this doom and gloom, right? We just see things yeah. around us and it just makes us cringe. Um, and a lot of it um, is not proportional to where we are in the world now. I mean, the world is more at peace today than ever in history. I mean, 25 years ago, we were in the Vietnam War, 50,000 Americans uh, were killed, came in body bags. 25 years before that, we were in World War II, and 25 years before that, we were in World War I. Uh, very, you know, human carnage is, is just incredible when you think about that. So the world is actually more at peace today uh, in the last, you know, 15, 20 years than any time in history. Uh, we're more prosperous today as, as a world than any time in human history. I mean, you can credibly say that in the next, you know, 15, 20 years, we might er- eradicate hunger in the world. I mean, we're actually at a point where there is enough food. It's just a matter of how do we get it to people? Right. Uh, well, how do we fix our distribution mechanism? So we're not only more at peace today, but we're more prosperous today. You know, China alone took 10 million people out of poverty in the last decade. So, we're at more peace. We're at more prosperous than ever before. And, uh, you know, you look at climate change and you go like, you know, this climate change is, you know, people have to come accept that this is human made. Um, the upside to it is that if it's man made, then we can actually do something about it. We can both take personal action in our personal life. We can take 
communal action and government policies and global policies. But there's also innovation that can come in and take place on fixing some of these things, whether it's the ozone layer or, or anything else. So the way I look at it, that, that, you know, the glass is more than half full, that we actually live in a better time than any time in human history. Um, and the opportunity for the world is phenomenal. Um, but it requires, just like my dad, some level of sacrifice. It requires um, effort. It requires uh, to walk in somebody else's shoes. It will not happen if we lean back and say it will fix itself or that somebody else would fix it for us. Um, so this is a time where people have to more engage. And if you look at the election and what's going on now, uh, I mean, in, in our state, uh, we've had as many people vote by the, you know, by end of yesterday as the entire midterm election 2014. That's just this phenomenal. Right? Yeah. So when people are, are pushed and when it becomes important, uh, as Americans, as Texans, as Houstonians, we respond, whether it's a, you know, to a, a hurricane or it's to a, a, or to, you know, corrupt and, uh, uh, brazen type of politics. We do respond. Sometimes not as quickly as we should. <laughs> uh, sometimes we dawdle a little bit, but that's, that's just, uh, that's just part of being a human being, right? We're, yeah. we're not necessarily rational beings or an irrational being. Uh, but we are coming together. And so I'm very optimistic that this is the time to be alive. And this is the time to be in a place like Houston, the most diversity in the nation. And this is the time where the opportunities for our kids and our grandkids um, are incredible. We just have to make the sacrifices and work towards them. We do. We do. And as, as the title of the show is, All of Our Voices Matter. You know, yours, mine, everyone's out there. All voices matter, and we have to be able to to raise them um, and speak up about what's important to us, but also to listen with with respect. And I think that's that's yeah. the main thing. And I, I'll just add one thing, and I and I think you've asked me a few times as a Muslim man. I think that uh, that element of respect. I served on, on ADL's Coalition of Mutual Respect, which is different faith leaders uh, coming together. And I find that um, faith uh, is an important part uh, uh, of our nation's history uh, as well as our, our, our nation's future. Um, and I don't mean that just in the organized, the Abrahamic faiths so, or, or any kind of organized faith because some, some people are just spiritual and not necessarily uh, uh, adhere to any, any particular one religion. Um, but that sense of belonging and taking care of your neighbor uh, is intrinsic part of all of that faith. That is a, a common uh, thread, you know, the, the golden rule. Do our unto others, yeah, common, do unto others as right. you would have done to you. So th- no matter what scripture you look at, that is a consistent thing. And I would argue that that is the one thing that gives us a sense of internal satisfaction and peace uh, as human beings. That when we do something for someone without wanting something in return, that is the one thing that always gives us that sense of joy and peace. So we're wired that way. We are wired to be there for each other. Um, so 
I think that that sense for me is that the future is bright because we will not, we might let each other, we might let ourselves down, but we're not going to let our neighbors down. I love that thought. I really do. Thank you so much, Mustafa. Thank you. I, you know, we've known each other for quite some time, but I learned a lot about you today because we never had this kind of a conversation. So mm-hmm. I really appreciate your perspective. Thanks so much for uh, for taking time, and thank you for watching and listening. If the mission of Our Voices Matter resonates with you, please like, subscribe, download, and share, and then join the conversation because it really is going to take all of us to make a difference.